how do you get your start in this industry of making movies and TV? For many of us, you move to LA, become a PA, and climb the ladder from there. But what if you can't move to LA? What if legally you can't move to LA? Like legally, you can't even work in LA because you're not a citizen of the United States. This week, I speak with director Stephen Williams, who was faced with this exact dilemma. We'll learn about his scrappy start as a filmmaker and how it led to his forthcoming film, Chevalier. The film, Chevalier, is based on the true story of composer Joseph Boulogne, the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner who rises to the heights in French society as a composer before an ill-fated love affair tears it all apart. It's a period piece set in the 18th century following Joseph from being this Marie Antoinette darling to being a true disruptor in the world of music, politics, and more. But there's something vibrant about it that I don't see in period pieces. It has this like prince-like feeling to it. And we actually touch on that in the conversation. Chevalier is just coming out now, but I guarantee you've seen Stephen's work. He holds an Emmy for his producing work on the series Watchmen, of which he also directed episodes. He's also directed on shows including Lost, Westworld, How to Get Away with Murder, The Walking Dead, The Americans, and many more. This guy seems to have touched every good TV show. I'm very jealous. And in our conversation, we'll get into Steven's career as a director and how he eventually made his way to Hollywood by way of Hawaii. And we'll also see how Steven balances his career in a way that prioritizes his family. And of course, we unpack Chevalier and how Steven worked with writer Stephanie Robertson to develop a story that captures the truth of this man who was almost written out of our history while creating a narrative that resonates today more than ever. So without further ado, Stephen Williams. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us on the No Film School podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, now, for our listeners, uh, we were just talking about how we are in the middle of a windstorm here in our respective LA locations. So if you hear the sound of the Wizard of Oz happening outside, that is what you're hearing. Yes, uh, it's, it's, um, it's been quite a, quite a winter here in LA between the rain, the wind, the unusually cold, frigid temperatures, all things being relative. I know folks in the East will probably think that we're, you know, West Coast wimps and they're probably not wrong. But um, yeah, it's been quite a, it's been quite a weather winter. Now, are you one of those people who find comfort in rain and coziness or are you like, bring on the sun, I am over this cold weather? I am typically a sun person. I'm like, I, w- I'm, I was born in Jamaica and lived there till I was 13 years old. So I'm kind of like my whole DNA is dialed into the tropics. That being said, I'm not averse to the odd, you know, cozy night under a blanket in front of a fire, but it tends to wear its welcome out fairly rapidly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we're at the end of our, I think like we've we've experienced it here in LA. We've had the rain. We don't know how to deal with it clearly. And now we're like, okay, we're done. 
let's move on. It's summertime. Right, right. <laughs> it's legitimately spring. So I think our impatience is, you know, justified. Well-timed. I, I believe it. So uh, you mentioned that you were born in Jamaica. Tell us how you got your start as a director. Was it was it as a kid in the warmth of Jamaica? No, not really. I mean, I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica, the capital, you know, big city. And my school was surrounded by three very vibrant cinemas that played, you know, an indiscriminate smorgasbord or menu of movies. So it could be karate films, obscure European indie films that were affordable to third world exhibitors and, you know, Hollywood movies. But we got them like many, many years later after the distribution chain had basically petered out in the more lucrative markets. And eventually the movies would land in Jamaica like years after they had ceased to be talking points in their, you know, countries of origin. And I just went to the movies like relentlessly. I would like, I was a turnstile kid. I would, you know, sign my name on the school register and then, you know, duck under the fence and go watch movies relentlessly. Oh gosh, and, scandalous. And, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, you know, long story short, I got a scholarship to go to high school in England. And so I left home when I was 13. I went to high school and university in England. By the time I graduated at 21, I knew that I wanted to be a director and wanted to try and make my way to America. But I had no money. I had no family, no connections. And it was hard then as it is now to immigrate under those circumstances and much easier conversely to get into Canada. And so I cobbled together enough money and, you know, got on a plane, promptly wound up in public housing in Toronto, but started working as a PA at a commercial production house, which is where I got my first kind of foot in the door, if you will. When you had that first job, were you what what was the feeling like? Did you feel like you had made it in that moment? I didn't feel like I had made it, but I felt like I was in the right place for me. Everything about being on set kind of made sense in a way, which isn't the same thing as saying I understood what everybody's craft categories were or what everybody's area areas or fields of responsibilities were, but I just felt at home in that environment. And, you know, this production house shot was a boutique house. And so I was one of only two PAs, production assistants that was, were on staff. And what that meant was on the weekends, I could help myself to short ends, which for your listeners, uh, short ends, you know, is like pre-digital, pre-Alexa period. It's from the era of film, of celluloid. And short ends is a phrase that refers to bits of rolls of film, whether 1,000-foot rolls or 400-foot rolls that have been left behind, haven't been used for you know the commercials that they were initially assigned for. They're leftovers, if you will. And I would take these short ends and uh, the cameras that, you know, that the, the company had, and I would go out and shoot fake commercials. I would like write spec commercials and like browbeat all my friends into being in those commercials. I would shoot them and I would edit them in the moviola that was in the basement of our production facility. And then periodically every two weeks I would like, or thereabouts, I would pester the owner of the company and kind of go, Hey man, do you mind taking a look at my reel, reel in inverted <laughs> commas? And he was an incredibly kind of benevolent paternal figure and he would give me notes and, and I would, you know, this process would repeat itself over 
bi-weekly, if you will. Yeah. And like six months in, I'm like, I go into his office and I show him the latest iteration of my reel. And he announces to me that a pool of PSAs, which are public service announcements, they're low budget kind of, you know, you know, public service announcement commercials. And none of the resident directors wanted to do those spots because they wanted to do the more expensive, flashy, flashy. lucrative, you know, beverage spots or car spots or whatever. And he literally was like, hey, why don't you take a run at these? Why don't you just wow. shoot these? And I, it was a pool of six 15-second spots and I shot them and they ended up winning a lot of Canadian awards, like wow. uh, which are, were then called the Bessies. I have no idea what they're called now. They're kind of like America's Cleos. And yeah. I literally like was on a Friday, I was pushing a broom as a PA. And on a Monday, I was like a director at this company. And wow. that's how I started. That's an incredible star story, literally piecing together your work t- and then rising to the occasion as soon as you're given this opportunity. What were the PSAs about the that first shot? They were for a Canadian outfit called Participation, which is a very clumsy way of urging people to be active in their lives. And so one of them was like, you know, I'll tell you one of them was like a a guy walks into a limbo stage, you know, just lit, illuminated in a kind of cone of light and everything else, a soundstage, everything else falls off to black. And he's wearing a business suit and he's carrying a briefcase and he walks, he circumnavigates what, what, he, what he finds in the middle, in the heart of this pool of light is like a six rung staircase, if you will, just sitting there, not attached to anything. And he walks around it a few times and then notices that there is a handle on the top of the stairs. And he picks up the stairs by the handle and exits frame all to a kind of pizzicato violin music track. And the super comes up, take the stairs, right? So it was urging people to, instead of taking the elevator, take the stairs, I guess, as a way of encouraging them to be healthy. And so it was a pool of those kinds of spots. They were kind of that simple. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And start starting from 15 seconds, and I think I just saw Chevalier is uh, an hour and 47 minutes. So right. that is, and move, you know, as I introduced on the, at the top of the show, you have had such extensive experience in directing for episodic, long form. So it's very inspiring to see how a job working as a PA, which is how so many of our listeners and so many people get their start, are able, that that is the jumping off point for you. So, so take, take us through moving from commercial work from the take the stairs, which I really hope we can find this video somewhere. I'm going to put this out to the internet. If you can find Stephen Williams, take the stairs PSA that, that would a gem. Um, but, but where did you go from there? How did, how did you make your way eventually from Canada commercial to Hollywood scripted? Well, I, so I'm still living in public housing, but I directing commercials. The next commercial I got was like for Canadian airlines, which is, I believe a now defunct airline that was designed to be a competitor for air Canada. But so I'm kind of doing these commercials and I know that I want to, you know, do drama and ultimately I want to make movies. So I met an agent, I can't remember how. And uh, she talked me into being able to do a couple of episodic shows in Canada. 
And one of those shows, I want to say was Soul Food, which was like an American Showtime show. And because it had American connections, I was able to now start, you know, jumping on a plane and flying from Toronto to LA to try to get representation. And I was doing MOWs in Canada and I got quite busy in Canada doing episodic one thing leading to another and MOWs and again, had a bit of a reel and flew to LA on spec and started knocking on doors, trying to find somebody to represent me. And through that process, I got introduced to uh, the producers of a show called Crossing Jordan, which was being shot at Universal Studios, not far from where I'm currently sitting. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can see Universal Studios through one of my windows. Um, And this show, Crossing Jordan, was, I want to say it was for NBC. It starred Jill Hennessy and Jerry O'Connell and a whole bunch of other actors. And one of the the pivotal part, though, is one of the, the writers of the episodes that I ended up getting on Crossing Jordan was a guy called Damon Lindelof, who very shortly along with J.J. Abrams, ended up cooking up this idea for a crazy show on a tropical island called Lost. I've heard of it. And, I've heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> because of my relationship with Damon, when he and J.J. started Lost, he asked me to come to Hawaii and do um, and to work on that show. And, and I did, and before long, ended up moving to Hawaii because I was a, a, a producer as well as a director of that show. And, and I... I stayed there for six years um, in Hawaii uh, until 2010 when I moved to LA when the show ended. Not a bad place to to settle down for a couple of years, I'd say. Uh, exactly. Now, no, I love Hawaii. Um, I actually had this question written down and I, I'm so glad it, that it came up organically in your story. Well, first of all, I, I think Lost was the first show that I ever binged watched in and then started watching in real time. So it was like this with the DVD box sets, feel right. like I'm dating myself. It was a precursor to what became the way that we consume episodic these days. Um, but before we get into that, I, I am curious for those of us who are or our listeners who are not yet working in the industry, when you're a producer on a TV show and also a director, it means something a little bit different than when you're doing it for uh for film. Can you tell us what, what that was? And maybe through the context of your time working on Lost and living in Hawaii, what you were doing as a producer and when you were stepping into that directing role? Uh, yeah. So I would do, this was back in the days when, you know, routinely a show like Lost would do 22, anywhere from 22 to 23 hours of TV a season. And I would, uh, do every third episode more or less roughly. And then part of my job as a, as a director, I would direct every third episode. And then part of my job as a producer, which is how it tends to function in TV, is you are there to help maintain a sense of consistency of tone and look and uh, visualization, if you will, of the show as various other visiting directors fly in and fly out doing an episode uh, of their own. And what that often means in practical terms is, you know, you're there in a sort of advisory capacity. Should you be, should you, there be a need to call on you for any kind of insight that you may have by virtue of being a more permanent fixture on the, uh, on the show than a, than a visiting director. 
And in some cases, you know, you would be responsible for shooting scenes in their episodes and or reshooting some of their scenes, you know, if through the editorial process that became necessary. So it's just more of a custodial position when you're not actually directing. And then, you know, you're there to direct a, a certain number of episodes, which helps maintain the kind of consistency of, of the show. Now, you mentioned earlier, as in the early days of building your career, that the goal was always to direct film. And what you're describing actually sounds like such a useful tool, a useful skill to be able to hold all that information and be the through line for the show. Right. Not, not to mention Lost being an incredibly complex, many character world of a show. So, so tell us about how uh, you, you move or when you moved into directing film, which of course you've gone from film to TV and, and back again. Uh, but, but what was the, what was the first feature for you? And, and what was that like taking your episodic experience into that? Well, interestingly, so the, when I, you know, I kind of jumped forward in time to talk about Lost. Um, I, when I was in Canada and I was living in public housing, I wrote and directed my first feature film, which was a movie called Soul Survivor. And it was based on my own experience. It was kind of like, to be honest, it was kind of a very loosely disguised ripoff of Mean Streets, which, you know, the Scorsese film, which I was hugely influenced by, as so many filmmakers uh, were. But it was set in the Jamaican immigrant community in Toronto and was essentially kind of about my life. And, you know, not in a literal sense, but in a kind of, it was a fictional analog, if you will, of things that I had experienced and was experiencing. And that movie ended up making absolutely no money at the box office because in, for many territories, it needed to be subtitled because of the Jamaican dialect that I insisted mm -hmm. on the characters using for the purposes of, you know, reality. And however, it did do really well in the festival circuit. Like it played Sundance and it opened Critics Week at Cannes and a whole bunch of other festivals across, you know, the cinematic landscape internationally. And mm -hmm. consequently, that helped me get the representation that took me to America and into deeper into the world of episodic. And, you know, I was always looking for other movies to do, but, you know, things were unfolding with a degree of rapidity that was hard for me to kind of entirely manage. In other words, I would get offered shows that were creatively or technically challenging enough to entice me to do those rather than dropping out of the TV game to try and find another movie. Although I was reading scripts and I was sometimes, you know, getting close to things, I am very, very selective about the work that I do. And I just didn't find anything that really legitimized or warranted me stopping doing what I was doing at that moment until I read Chevalier and that was just too compelling to, to not try to put together and, and put on the screen. Absolutely. And, and so the script for Chevalier written by Stephanie Robinson comes across your desk. Was this something that your representation had bubbled up to you or was it something that was featured on the blacklist? How did, how did it come? Did it, come into the Stephen Williams circle 
of yeah. awareness. Yeah. So as far as I understand it, like Stephanie was introduced to the concept of, to the, was, was introduced to Chevalier, the existence of Chevalier, the fact that there was this guy in pre-revolutionary France, a black man who came from Guadeloupe, whose father was a plantation owner, whose mother was an enslaved woman, was impregnated at 16 by the plantation owner. And then when he was around about 10, he, Joseph Bologna, a.k.a. Chevalier, was taken by his father to France, and he became, as John Adams, the American president at the time, described him as the most accomplished man in Europe. He was like a virtuosic violinist, a composer of concertos, opera, uh, champion equestrian, champion fencer, champion marksman, and, you know, by all accounts, a man about town mm-hmm. and a close cohort of Marie Antoinette. So Stephanie was introduced by, to this person by her mother, I think a book that her mother had given her when she was a teenager and had long harbored the ambition to write a script about it. She did that. Searchlight bought that script. And then one fateful morning, I opened my inbox, my laptop, and there sitting there was this script. And I started reading it. And like three pages in, I was like, oh my God, this is insane. This is too improbable to be true. And yet it was. And so I, again, because of the show that we're doing, and maybe this is of interest to your listeners, I. The first thing I wanted to do was like try to kind of dial in to a tone and a vibe and a visual kind of anchor for this script. And from reading the script and familiarizing myself with this person that I had never heard of before, Chevalier, I came to the conclusion that he must have been in some way, shape or form, like a rock star of his time. He was like mm-hmm. Prince or Jimi Hendrix. And I put together a little trailer of like a, like what would be a movie trailer for the movie were I to be, you know, given the opportunity to direct this movie, to turn the script into a movie. This is what the trailer would look and feel like. And this is what the movie would by extension look and feel like. And so I put together that trailer and shared it with Stephanie and with Searchlight. And that trailer, I think ultimately convinced them that if I could make a movie that felt even halfway like the trailer, then I was probably the right person for the gig. And that's kind of how it it unfolded. What were some of the sources of inspiration or films? And I'm sure you also look to things outside of film that you pulled from to put together this, this trailer. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things. There were like Prince concerts, you know, Prince footage, Jimi Hendrix footage, footage from different movies. I remember at one point I took, I took up a, uh, a couple of, of frames from, Django, uh, the Tarantino movie Django, and uh, some from 12 Years a Slave. And just it was just kind of a mashup of images and music and title cards and uh, that took you, the viewer through essentially the travel of the movie, but with a kind of tonal vibe that I, f- I was hoping I would be able to bring to the movie should I ever get the chance to make it. Uh, the way the what you're describing is the the kickoff to the film is this scene where Joseph Chevalier plays with or chal- it feels like a challenge in in a very sophisticated way a violin off if you will a duel yeah. a musical yeah, it's duel like a rap battle 
with exactly <laughs> with none other than Mozart. And and yeah. even though it is in a concert hall with this sort of moody lighting and pale makeup and powdered wigs, it absolutely captures the energy of a Prince concert. And 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 that was just such a wonderful way to set the tone of the film and a wonderful way to go into the movie. So I'm curious, was when you first picked up the script, was that scene always there? Was this always your way into this story? Yeah, the scene was always there and it was always my way into the story. I was like, you know, it's worth reminding yourself to state the obvious, but like in the mid to late 1700s in France, there was no, there were no iPods there was no CDs, there were no, Spotify didn't exist, there was no vinyl. So whenever music was performed, was composed and performed, it was live. And the people listening to that music, the audience for that music was live. And so it had that kind of sense of immediacy, that sense of unfolding in the now, that sense Mm -hmm. of subjective immersion. And that was the overarching kind of conceit for the visual grammar of the movie. I wanted to, you know, often for me as a viewer anyway, period pieces can tend to feel distance. They can tend to feel as if you're looking through a periscope, you know, a couple hundred years back and it's, it, they're kind of, they can be kind of stayed in a mm-hmm. way. And I wanted this to feel exactly the opposite of that. I wanted it to feel, I wanted it to honor the time period in, in which it took place. I didn't want it to feel any effort to give it a sense of immediacy or a contemporary vibe. I didn't want that to feel gimmicky, Yeah, but I did want the piece to have that energy. And so that became the kind of MO, the operating MO for every department from costumes to production design, camera, Let's let's it. talk about how you assembled your team uh, when you premiered the film at TIFF, which was also where is that where you premiered your Soul Survivor as well? I think Soul Survivor played Sundance first, and then it played Cannes, and then a bunch of other festivals thereafter, including Toronto. But it wasn't premiered at Toronto. It played Cannes before it played Toronto. But what a great place to circle back with this film, yeah, and. For sure. uh, and and in a place where you also started your film career, um, and and in the I, I guess preamble for the film, you got to introduce your team, and you were naming them, introducing their roles, and then naming the projects that you've also that we've also seen them. And you were, you know, were you there? No, I watched a video of it, and it's a I think it's yeah. a fantastic uh, just moment to to appreciate this powerhouse of people. You're naming Atlanta. What we do in the shadows, get out, normal people. I was just like, my mind was blown with the the work that this team of, has touched. So, right. so, talk to me about how you went about bringing together such an impressive team, and also how your past experiences inform your hiring decisions. Because as a director, you're essentially building a temporary business to right. function. Yeah, that's um. I mean, it's a great question. I feel like it is as important to cast all of your collaborators behind the camera with the same degree of care and focus and attention that you put into casting the performers on the other side of the camera. And so I'm super kind of careful and really just kind of looking for 
obviously not just people who have the creative chops, but who are also kind of interested in being part of a collaborative process. I very much trust and value everything that all the keys bring to the kind of conversation. We all need to be singing from the same hymn book, yes, but I want everyone to feel free to, as you know, completely free to to bring all of themselves to the table. And I feel quite confident that I'm able to kind of avail myself of everyone's contributions, wherever it's coming from. And, and it doesn't just have to do with the keys. It can be anybody on the, on the crew, really. And one of the first things I do is I, you know, invite the crew to contribute uh, and to embrace the, to, to understand that every, every country, there's no contribution more important than anybody else's contribution. And that they actually probably are unlikely to trust that I mean that when I say it because they've never worked with me for the most part and so have no way of, of assessing the veracity of that claim that I'm making but I ask them to bear with me and to to give it a shot and to trust me and very quickly they will see that I do mean what I say and I do love collaborating and I will you know completely I'm completely open to anyone's point of view when I work and so I'm looking for that quality in in collaborators, and um, certainly found it in the in the in the group that I was blessed enough and honored enough to have collabing with me on this movie. What was a a point of view that somebody brought to you in the the making of Chevalier that that you didn't see, but you were able to recognize as like, oh, this makes this so much better. I mean, first of all. Let me say this, like going back to the script, you know, Stephanie and I worked together on the script a lot. We, we did several drafts of the script, you know, separate and apart from the one that I read initially. And there were lots of reasons for that, creative, budgetary. But I find that I kind of ultimately need to kind of shape the material in a way that allows me to shoot it the way that I want to shoot it. So the first person that was like completely open to that kind of collaboration was Stephanie. And and I, I, you know, I'm eternally grateful to her and thoroughly enjoyed I, working with her. But then, like, specifically, I remember Karen Murphy, who was recently nominated for an Academy Award, along with Catherine Martin for Elvis, and had done movies like Queen and Slim and a whole bunch of Baz Luhrmann movies before. We were talking, the way in which I wanted to work with her was that she would kind of be the umbrella overarching a lot of the visual kind of palette. So costumes, hair, makeup, set design, all of those things would fall, you know, would would get filtered through her so as to help the movie have as cohesive a look as mm -hmm. possible. So one of the first conversations we had was about costumes and I, you know, our costume designer Oliver, I will never forget him sitting in my office and he was like, "So how do you see the costumes?" and I was like, well, how many scenes are there in the movie? Like, I don't know. I'm guessing, like, let's say 110. Well, I think there's going to be like pretty much a new costume for every scene. And, you know, he was so polite and so gracious that he didn't get up and walk out of my office immediately. But Karen immediately interjected and said, uh, let me, let me 
have a, a you know separate conversation with Oliver, and then we'll come back and pitch you something and present something to you. And and I was like, sounds great, Karen. And off she went, and she and Oliver went off, and they came back and they presented exactly the palette of costumes that you see in the movie, which wow. was not anywhere near as either unaffordable, untenable, unreasonable, and just plain kind of ill-advised as the version that I had initially pitched to him. And once when Karen and Oliver returned with their pitch, I was like, so grateful. I'm like, Oh my God, this is just one of many examples in which you guys have saved me from, from myself and are going to help me look far better than I and smarter than I deserve. So that's just one example, but there were many. (laughs) It's, it's, I think a great leader and and as I continue to talk with more directors and showrunners and folks in the space who are in leadership positions, the the ones who are successful, I see trust others to be experts in their fields. And and it's such a refreshing ego-free way of leading. Like of course have the through line and and contain that and maintain that, but also empower people around you to to rise to the occasion as well. I love that. And it's a great feeling. It's like it's not even like I wanna lay claim to being it being like such an amazing virtue and what a great guy I am. It's just, it feels good to me. It feels natural up mm-hmm. that way of approaching a creative endeavor like this. It just feels natural and it feels good. It feels great when other people are contributing and take ownership of this, of the piece in the same way. And we're all, you know, we're a squad, we're a squad, you know, like a, like a sports team. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're all like on the same team and we're all striving for the same goal that, I don't know, that just feels good to me. Have you noticed the the culture within the industry shifting more towards this over over the course of your career? I'm going to be really embarrassing and really unhelpful. Like, I don't really pay that much attention to... I'm just not that kind of dialed into the rest of the industry, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm uh, I, my first order of business is my family. I'm married. I have three kids and that they are absolutely hands down my favorite occupation, way to spend my time. In many ways, this, that your question connects to the one you asked me before about movies. And a lot of the creative decisions that I've made have been about what are the location, how, how ab- about the impact that that would have on my family and my mm-hmm. ability to, to, spend as much time with my family and as little time away from my family as, as humanly possible. So I, my working life is really, really important to me, but it is, it pales in comparison to my family life. And so I don't really, I'm not really dialed into like, you know, I, I don't go to a lot of industry events. I don't really, you know, I do read stuff and I try to stay informed and, as educated as I can, but I'm not really in the mix of things. I'm kind of in it, but not of it, if you will. <laughs> I, I That is so refreshing to hear, especially when you're hus- in the hustle of trying to break in. It's so easy to just prioritize work and this go, go, go culture that this industry does breed. So to see an example of somebody who is putting family first and prioritizing self and also having a fruitful career like 
that is, I think, a great thing for our, our listeners and for me to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think do it's just go- about your priorities, really. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, what 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 are you going to prioritize? And you know, as banal as this is going to sound, and then we can get off this topic. But as I I remember reading something, and I want to say I want to attribute it to Oprah, but if she didn't say it. Um, apologies, Oprah. But she, I, I remember reading something in in an Oprah magazine. Yes, weirdly enough, uh, I told you it was going to be cheesy and corny. Uh, we love, we love. Who doesn't love Oprah? <laughs> and essentially, the sentiment was this: on your deathbed, you will not regret a movie or a TV show that you didn't direct, but you will regret the time you didn't spend with your kids or your family. And I found that immediately true. And I, my life experience has only confirmed that that will be true in my case. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just informs every decision that I make. That's a great way to be framing these decisions. And also when because there, there will always feel like this feeling of there's more I could be doing for my career. Like there's always more opportunity to grow, especially because as as a filmmaker and a and and working in television, it, it's nonstop. There's always more to do. So to be able to prioritize and contextualize what you're doing while building a career, I think that's really wonderful. And I I I hope we can dig up that quote. As well as the the PSA, <laughs> take the stairs PSA. Oh Two God. valuable things. Well, you uh, have a lot of sleuthing ahead of I know, you. I know. I know. I, I will. I will. If our listeners come through, I'll definitely. I'll let you know on okay. either front. On either front. All right. Uh, I'll hold you to it. I I want to go back to um, something you you touched upon when it came when when you were talking about collaborating with Stephanie on the film and the process of developing the story with her. Uh, Stephanie mentioned in um, one of the, the screenings, a, a Q&A, she, she mentions that she sees the film as uh, a, a fictionalization of this story versus a biopic because there right. was way too much to cover in Joseph Bolognese's life. So, yeah. so tell me about what the development process is or was with you two, and and as a storyteller, how do you create a narrative from a life? I think that's a, an awesome question. So first off, Stephanie is a hundred percent correct. Joseph's life, as I mentioned earlier, as I was you know running down the the list of his accomplishments, his life was so huge, you know that it could fuel a half a dozen movies. So the very first thing that Stephanie and I kind of connected on was the notion that we weren't going to do a cradle to grave biopic. We weren't going to do a Wikipedia page. Wikipedia exists. Go check it out (laughs) yourself. We weren't going to do that. That was not the goal we were setting ourselves. And then, so first of all, there's that foundation. Then beyond that is like, as a, the only way I know how to work fruitfully is to find um, uh, something of personal connection, right? So 
Joseph Polonia came from Guadeloupe and went to France when he was about 10. I, as I've shared with you, came from another Caribbean island, Jamaica, and went to England when I was 13. So we were roughly the same age. And a lot of what he encountered, the challenges and obstacles and, you know, difficulties that he experienced, I recognized and identified with and felt, uh, I, I felt connected to. And so that then kind of made me ask myself, like, what portion of his life is the most essential for me to tell? Which one, what portion of his life did I find most compelling to, to bring to the screen? And that it turns out that that portion was the journey to greater kind of self-awareness that mm-hmm. he underwent when he, when he, when the movie opens, he's, you know, super tight with Marie Antoinette and is striving to be accepted and received and included in the upper echelons of French society. By the time the movie ends, he has decided something has changed. He has undergone some personal transformation and he now understands that his destiny lies in bearing arms against that very, very monarchy in the revolutionary war, which he does. So it was about a journey of, self coming into a greater sense of self-awareness a journey of understanding yourself better through through the grist mill and the trials and tribulations that life sends your way that felt to me not only true about joseph bologna it was something i recognized in my own life journey and beyond that something that i feel is kind of universal and that was really intoxicating idea to try to use the tapestry of Joseph's life to tell that version of that portion uh, of his story. Now, in doing that, you have to, I guess you don't have to, but we chose to make up, uh, fictionalize, uh, be inspired by while remaining as best we could spiritually true to the essence of who Joseph was, his times and his experiences. And, you know, I came across a quote that your viewers will, I mean, your listeners will be able to find very easily this one. They won't have to work as hard (laughs) um, to find this one. Uh, I came across this quote from Tom Stoppard, right? The noted playwright and screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And he said, facts are facts. Truth is something else entirely and is a product of the imagination. And that became my North Star in making this movie. I was like, we don't have to be, not everything has to be factually true. It just has to be true, true. (laughs) Just has to be essentially true, right? So that was the MO for, you know, like that opening sequence that you talked about between Joseph and Mozart, that never occurred, but it felt like insofar as they were peers, insofar as Joseph has often been, you know, somewhat inelegantly referred to uh, as a, the black Mozart, it felt like that was a great way to open the movie and to kind of put all the chips of what the contest was going to be in Joseph's life in the larger context on the table in addition to it just being kind of like a cool, hopefully entertaining movie scene. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> was thoroughly entertained and, and like I said, if the, it felt like a rock show and 
it had the stakes and the and of that and and yet I was also thoroughly enjoying classical music, which is something right. that I hope we see. You know, when you hear about these like cultural moments where like, and then there was an uptick and this. Right. And and I hope that, you know, in a couple of weeks when the with the release, it's like, and then the Spotify lists skyrocketed in the classical space. And um Yeah, yeah I, I have the same hope. Yeah. There's also something really um powerful about embracing a a, a, narr- a narrative and a story that also allows you to have a character who has autonomy and is making choices and is also flawed. You know, he engages right. in a romantic relationship with Marie Josephine, the Samara Weavey character. And it's yeah. one of those things where you're watching and you're like, oh, don't this, do it. Yeah, oh, exactly. but he's going to do it. I want them to get away with it. And that is the drama that keeps us as an audience leaning in. And I think right. it's it's important to, in this world where we're latching on to things that I question if they're even stories worth being told, like uh, with our cultural obsession with true crime, which like, yes, we're presenting facts, but to what end? Right. Why, why are we why are we choosing to engage with this story versus a story that, you know, is powerful, important and uh, and is also entertaining Right. Um, which is the magic yeah. of what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that relationship just for the record between Joseph and Marie Josephine is, is, uh, uh, is factually true, but obviously I have no, I wasn't privy to any of the conversations that they, they had with each other. So that's where the imagination comes in, but that relationship was true. It happened and it ended and Joseph, you know, died at 53, unmarried and childless. So, you know, and, you know, just to, at the risk of ringing this bell one last time, that opening sequence is not factual and yet it's true. There's nothing mm-hmm. in that opening sequence that isn't true. Joseph was a peer of Mozart's. He potentially did influence some of Mozart's music. Mozart potentially did write a character in The Magic Flute based on Joseph. And they were rivals to some extent and joseph was a rock star of his time so everything that happens in that sequence is true it's just not factual it's just dra- it, it's dramatized it's dramatized yeah. and and yeah i i love this and as a I, I it's it's interesting i think of the first times that i was writing and i see this with a lot of very new writers is that we hang on to the facts well it had no, the scene has to be this way because it happened that way. Right. And like, that's how it really works. Insert whatever your story right. is. Right. But then you'll get an audience of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you a writer? Is that what you do? You yeah, I, I write and direct. So I... Oh, uh, wow. Awesome. I, uh, I love I would love to, to see some of your work. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's interesting. I I... I've found speaking to the music of the film, I've, I learned how to edit over the course of the pandemic. And I also learned how to temp score. And it's interesting to see a movie that is so driven by the rhythm of music and thinking about story and how we tell our stories and how musical it can be. So, yeah. Well, with that, I, Cannot thank you enough for telling us your your story, sharing your story. I can't wait for the world to see 
and here, Chevalier. And is there any way that our listeners can follow your work? Are you on social media or do you have a newsletter or are we just going to have to tune into the trades? I am not on any social media. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, less is more. Yeah. When, you know, it's such a kind of busy world out there that I feel like I feel disinclined to you know, add, add noise to the hubbub unless there's some reason for it. So, you know, and, and usually that would be in the form of my work. So I, you know, when I, when I know what I'm doing next, uh, hopefully we will have we'll made some fans again. from Chevalier and, and, uh, they'll be curious to see what, what's gonna, what, what's gonna transpire next. <laughs> well, well, whatever, whenever that happens, please, come back and speak with us because I know our listeners will love to hear more. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you so much for taking the time and uh, um, really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen, for taking the time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. What struck me most about this conversation with Stephen was his ability to prioritize his goals and to recognize his goals. When starting out as a PA, he didn't wait for permission to make something. He used what was at his fingertips and iterated on his work. Please, please, somebody find us that Take the Stairs PSA. I will love you forever. On top of this, and as Stephen's career has taken off, he has prioritized a balance in his career between family and career that feels incredibly healthy and something that will lead to longevity. I mean, as it already has. Look at his IMDb. After all, this career that we're choosing is a marathon and not a sprint. You can follow No Film School across the internet at No Film School on our social medias. And you can also read more on nofilmschool.com. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.